Our conference is concluding with a look ahead to October term 2015. As of now, the court has 35 cases on its docket, continuing a declining trend, so we can expect about 70 opinions at term's end. Here are some of the issues. Whether public employees can be forced to subsidize unions whose activities they don't support. Whether and how racial preferences can be used in college admissions. Whether state legislative districts should be drawn to equalize people or voters whether a class action can proceed on a statistical theory of damages and where certain class members weren't injured at all, and whether a criminal defendant has a right to use untainted assets to pay for her legal defense. These cases don't quite reach the high profile of recent terms, at least not yet, but they should be enough to shift the liberals' ascendant narrative that came out this past June. As John Elwood and Connor McEvely conclude in their Looking Ahead essay in your volumes of the Supreme Court Review, quote, we should hesitate to say that this is another candidate to be the term of the century, but we can all agree that October term 2015 is a strong contender to, the, to be the outstanding term of the third fifth of the 20 teens. <laughs> to discuss the term we have, in addition to John Elwood, uh, Lisa Blatt and Damon Root, your, their bios are in your material, so I will just introduce them briefly, and I will remind you, uh, since it's been a while since I've announced this, the password to the Cato Wi-Fi network is Give Me Liberty, with each uh, first letter of each of those words capitalized, and the hashtag for our Twitter feed, you can tweet at me, at iShapiro, hashtag CatoSCR15. All right. Lisa, Lisa Blatt, heads Arnold and Porter's appellate and Supreme Court practice. She's a veteran advocate, having argued 33 cases before the high court and prevailed in 32. That's the most by any woman ever, and she made sure that it would stay that way by engineering the appointment of her main rival, Patricia Millette, to the D.C. Circuit, <laughs> including forcing Harry Reid to exercise the nuclear option. I wonder what she has on him. Lisa has been hailed as a visionary in the law, one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, and one of the 100 most powerful women in Washington. The prestigious Chambers USA noted her meticulous oral argument preparation, and the Supreme Court Clerk's Guide for Counsel cites her advocacy as an example of best practices. So she has lots to live up to here. Lisa. We've divvied up the cases. All right, so we'll start we with cases. Strength. This is a libertarian um, organization. Yeah, you so the one, just, I'll just say something. I was uh, quite taken aback by uh, Ilya's description of the issues. They were so slanted. But um, so I would take issue with the way he described them and say not everyone would see them the way he would. But I do think he is right that the outcome will be uh, much more in keeping with uh, Cato's views and the views of the business com uh, community than last term, which was uh, exceedingly, uh, exceedingly and sort of shockingly liberal in uh, in many cases, um, and so that's good news if you think the pendulum it's time to, to swing back. Although the social issues, I don't think necessarily are on the docket yet, except for the Fisher case, the affirmative action case, and we'll talk about that. But I, I assume the abortion will get there uh, this term. Um, Ilya asked me to talk about, and did you want me to cover both Tyson's and Friedrich's at once, or uh, just take one of them? Doesn't matter. Cover your All right. material, and then we'll get into it later. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> this really is about liberty. All right. Um, so Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, it's not yet calendared for oral argument. It comes from the Ninth Circuit. And um, one way of framing the question presented is whether unions uh, have the right to compel uh, non-believers into coerced speech. Uh, another way to frame the issue is whether public unions will continue to survive or whether uh, public employers can continue to efficiently uh, negotiate with uh, collective bargaining units. But this is an issue that has been, um, it's, a, it's a pure First Amendment issue. It has been the, I guess, for lack of a better word, baby or pet project of Justice Alito um, for about three or four years now. He authored the last two cases dealing with public employees. Um, I take it most of you know the background that if you're a public employee, um, and I was, I guess, for the state of Texas and the federal government, um, but never a member of a union. Apparently, I was paying all this time unknown to me. I was paying uh, for part of the, the union dues um, for them to negotiate on my behalf. Um, yet the Supreme Court in this case called a boot from 1977 um, said that that was constitutional, that it was not compelling my speech, even though I was funding it, as long as it related to core collective bargaining and it didn't go to lobbying activities, which in which case it would be compelled speech. So this comes from California, which is obviously a big state, and there are two provisions at issue. The first one is the typical uh, arrangement I talked about. In California, a portion of your salary goes to pay for part of the union dues. Um, there's actually a very interesting second question presented is that, as we talked about, the union is not allowed to charge you for lobbying and other non-chargeable fees. But in California, apparently, they take that money anyway unless you object. So you have to actually say something and opt out of it. And so there's two questions presented. Um, the first is whether the Supreme Court should overrule the Abu decision. And the second is whether they do or whether they don't should California at least require an opt-in um, and not make everyone have to object uh, before you take the money? And it's hard for me just to not weigh in. I don't care what you think about the first issue. It seems like the second one has got to be wrong, that nobody expects to get a cable bill that says, by the way, we're charging you a bunch of illegal fees. Just let us know if you object. I mean, I just can't imagine that the court will say, that that's right, because nobody, just inertia, nobody wants to have to have to opt in, excuse me, opt out. Um, so this is, a, I think this is pretty much, a, you know, a big case if you care about this issue, but there were 19 amicus briefs filed, which is a lot, a lot. Um, one brief uh, authored by Michigan was filed by 18 states, which is, uh, I think helpful for the for the people who oppose the union fees because California is obviously on the other side and saying they need to be able to do this. Um, Cato filed an amicus brief, but only on that second question presented, um, and, and some of the amicus briefs only filed on the second question presented. Abood is sort of a strange case. Um, it was in 1977, and I think at the time it was probably not well reasoned and scholars and you know people who are pro-unions have been trying to figure out what the constitutional underpinning is it, it is and the general rationale is um, although I'm not a member of the union the union has a duty to negotiate on my behalf it's not fair for me to free ride and they're not really compelling speech they're just helping me get my higher wages the other side has 
a lot of arguments on why that doesn't work um, and that Abood is sort of out of, out of step with every other First Amendment uh, precedent. They also have a very sort of clean argument that by definition, if you're a public employee, the wages you're paid, um, it's a matter of, of public debate and that's core political speech. One of the briefs, Michigan, I thought was quite entertaining in that they explained that the major bankruptcies in America, namely Detroit, which had $7 billion in public debt to employees, $3 billion in pension, was a result of collective bargaining. So they make a powerful argument that, come on, this is, this is political speech and people who don't believe in these uh, bloated budgets uh, should be uh, paying for them. Um, so they have their, their main argument, I think, is that there's just not that much difference between lobbying where it's unconstitutional to compel someone to support and your wages for public employees. Um, the, the last time this came around again in two cases, uh, Harris versus Quinn and in Knox, um, Justice Kagan, I think sort of seeing, and, and Justice Alito in these last two opinions authored basically said Abood is really on shaky underpinnings and we're not going to extend it, we're going to cut it back. And she tried uh, mightily in the last dissent to sort of bring a new constitutional uh, basis for this, saying this is uh, under Pickering, there's a special rule that applies to public employees. As a public employee, your speech is limited anyway, so by parity of reasoning, who cares if we compel public employee speech? I don't think it's going to carry the day, but, you know, the, the one caveat is that so there are 20 briefs right now, I mean, not all of them, but basically calling for Abu to be overruled. We haven't seen the other side yet. I assume the unions are going to come back with a lot, although I was not overwhelmed by their brief in opposition trying to defend the precedent. Um, it didn't seem that persuasive. Um, and I, you know, I don't have a, a political view that's anti-union, but I just, it wasn't that persuasive. So I don't know how, what's going to happen, except that there will be four votes to probably uh, keep it and most likely five votes to take it away, but who knows. You want me to keep going? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so the other case I was asked to talk about. Um, this, this is the most meticulously prepared uh, advocate. Me? Oh, oh. That's <laughs> um, funny. I once went to talk to a uh, panel. It was the National Association of Attorney General on argument preparation, and I didn't know where the event was, and so I showed up half an hour late. It was really funny. Um, <laughs> and I was there to talk about preparation. Um, so Tyson's. Tyson's is huge if you are a business and you care about class actions. Um, I have several clients who are all over the Tyson's case. I, every time there's something that comes on, I read about it. Um, it is a meatpacking facility. It is a, compared to Walmart, which had a million employees all over the, the country, all 50 states, uh, this is one plant, um, and the issue uh, is the, the amount of overtime pay under the Fair Labor Standards Act for donning and doffing, which is basically changing clothes and protective equipment that would range from everything to a hair bonnet or you know, uh, whatever these things are to protect yourselves from knives. I forgot what they're called. The Cato filed an amicus brief in this case, too. There were 15 amicus briefs. These are, these are a lot of amicus briefs, um, which means you know, the importance of the case. Uh, this case also has two questions presented, um, which I think uh, the court doesn't have to get to both. 
Um, but you're going to love the amounts in this case. It's a $6 million judgment, which is not you know astronomical. And there were 744 employees. So that's not... You wonder why the court took it, except for that this issue has been brewing in a long time. What happened, and it's the same expert in all these class action cases, is the expert comes in and says, well, I have no way of knowing. Even though everybody had different employees, they all worked, they all had different types of equipment. I'm just going to average uh, and take statistical sampling and just, I don't know what he came up with, 2.6 hours of overtime in one department and X amount of hours in another department. And then we'll just average that out and we'll come up with the judgment that way. And class actions are supposed to have a common issue, like we all have the same defective battery. They're not supposed to be um, like in Walmart, where everyone was subject to a different employment practice. So the question is, is that did these cases present common issues? And if you call that common, does that basically affect a fundamental denial of due process? I think it clearly does, because you can't defend yourself. If, if, if somebody was averaged, you're basically paying for somebody uh, where you didn't have a right to defend yourself. The second question is similar to that. We, they know, because it's just, I think, part of the, the concessions in the case is that some of these people didn't even work overtime. <laughs> and they're, they're getting money. So we know the class uh, includes people who weren't uh, damaged. Um, again, this issue comes up a lot. The, um, da- there's a Dow case, which I think the judgment was a billion dollars. That's being held for this case. Um, I have a lot of cases uh, involving consumer products where this issue has come up. We haven't seen the briefs on the other side. So again, it looks very good right now for the defense because you have all these great briefs and overwhelming arguments. So it's always hard when you haven't seen the other briefs come in. And the real question is, will this be like a, a Walmart and be like a huge sea change? It cuts back on class actions or will the courts, you know, stop short of that? And I don't know, it's, it'll be very interesting to see, and people are eagerly watching this case. <laughs> I have no idea. Three minutes? Okay. I'd like to talk about my personal life for a little bit. I mean, come on. <laughs> we discussed this over email. The, is that it? Is that, yes, that's okay. it. There are questions. Okay. Um, okay. No, well, questions no. is later. Okay. All right. I will never be asked back, I can tell. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send this video to the Supreme Court clerk's office and see what they do with their... We're used to it. Um, by the way, we do agree that, Tater does agree that uh, Abood should be overruled, but there is enough briefing on that. That's why we focused on the, on the second issue. All right, next we'll, uh, we'll have Damon Root, who's a senior editor at Reason Magazine and Reason.com, where he covers law and politics, including especially the Supreme Court. He's the author of the magisterial must-read book, uh, Overruled, The Long War for Control of the U.S. Supreme Court, available all over the place, and you should get it and read it and reread it. Uh, The book came out of a July 2010 Reason cover story, Conservatives versus Libertarians, The Debate Over Judicial Activism Divides Former Allies, which was nominated for an L.A. Press Club Award for Best Magazine Feature. Damon's writing has been cited by the Texas Supreme Court and numerous academic journals, He's spoken before audiences at Harvard, Georgetown, Columbia, and the New York Civil Liberties Union and has been featured on C-SPAN, the Fox Business Channel, Sirius Radio, and other media outlets. Uh, Notoriously, Damon sometimes uses me as a source in his stories. Damon, and please come up to the podium, will you? Okay. 
Well, uh, thank you, Ilya, for that great introduction, those very kind words. I appreciate it. Uh, it's wonderful to see all of you here today. Thanks to Cato Institute for inviting me to this uh, great event. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to speak briefly today about uh, two cases that are, that are coming up this term and then one area of the law that I think is uh, pretty likely to also be before the Supreme Court. So let me begin with uh, one of the cases we can expect, and that's Fisher versus Uni uh, University of Texas at Austin. If this is a uh, familiar name to, to, uh, to some of you, that's because the Supreme Court has actually heard this case before. Uh, this is the case of Abigail Fisher, a, uh, a white uh, college applicant who uh, sued the University of Texas at Austin because she claims that the school's uh, race-conscious undergraduate admissions policies violated her right to equal treatment under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, UT uses race as what it calls a plus factor uh, to ensure diversity on campus. October 2012, the Supreme Court had oral arguments in this case. Eight months later, in one of the great anticlimaxes of recent Supreme Court history, the court uh, ruled 7-1 on the case, but essentially uh, punted it back down to the lower courts. Uh, it went back to the lower courts. It's now back before the Supreme Court, so we're going to have the case this term. Now, to understand Fisher, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the prehistory of uh, the Fisher case. And this begins really in 1996 with a case called Hopwood in the Fifth Circuit. So the University of Texas at Austin had a similar uh, race-conscious affirmative action admissions, admissions program for undergraduates at the time, and the Fifth Circuit uh, struck that down, said this was unconstitutional. A year later, 1997, the Texas legislature responds to the Hopwood decision by enacting something called the Top 10% Plan. This basically says that if you graduate uh, in the top 10% of your class in one of the uh, high credited high schools in the state of Texas, you're guaranteed admission into the University of Texas system. This was a, an attempt to create a, an ostensibly race-neutral uh, means to ensure diversity, to ensure that uh, underrepresented minorities are coming into campus. This is, the, this is the legislature's attempt to grapple with the Hopwood decision. Now, around the same time this is happening, late 90s, early 2000s, two other affirmative action cases start bubbling up in the courts, these coming out of the University of Michigan. And in 2003, the uh, University of Michigan's cases are decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, Gratz versus Bollinger, where the court struck down Michigan's use of race in undergraduate admissions, and Grutter versus Bollinger, where the court upheld Michigan's use of race in the uh, law school as a, as, as a plus factor. The court said that uh, Michigan's law school's use of race was one a modest factor among many in determining an applicant's um, admittance. The day that Grutter is handed down, uh, the University of Texas announces that it is reinstating a race-conscious undergraduate admissions program to be consistent with Grutter. Uh, before, before that, it had just been the top 10% plan had been what had been largely uh, uh, accountable for, or what had been largely been creating the um, racial diversity on campus. The university says that really hasn't been enough. It's not enough to ensure uh, a, quote, critical mass of uh, uh, minority students on campus, and so the school brought, uh, brought race-conscious policies back. That creates the lawsuit, Fisher versus University of Texas, that Supreme Court has heard and is now hearing again. Now, when we're talking about the government's use of race, and when we're talking about the University of Texas, we're talking about the government. It's a state school. These are government employees who work there. When you're talking about the government's use of race, uh, the government's use of race has to survive something that the courts call strict scrutiny. This is the most exacting form of judicial review. And strict scrutiny is a two-part test. 
says that the, the government's use of race must serve a compelling state interest. And it also must, that's part one, and part two, it must be narrowly tailored to achieve that compelling interest. The court has held, Supreme Court has held for some time that ensuring diversity on campus is a compelling interest. So they can meet that prong. When Fisher won, let's call it, was before the Supreme Court a couple years ago, when the court sent the case back down to the Fifth Circuit, it was because the Fifth Circuit had not really done a serious investigation into the second prong, the narrow tailoring prong of strict scrutiny. And what uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court said was that the, court, uh, that the Fifth Circuit had been too deferential, had taken the university's assertions that this is a narrowly tailored program on uh, good faith, and that that's, that's not what strict scrutiny requires. It's a more meaningful examination, so the case is sent back down. Fifth Circuit rules in favor of the university once again. Abigail Fisher appeals to the Supreme Court once again. Now the court is before us once again. I, I think at the, at the very least we can say there's not going to be a punt this time around. I think the court will give us a ruling on the constitutional merits. I suspect that the University of Texas is not happy to be in this position a second time, that their program may be in some trouble. And one of the problems, let me just say, that the University of Texas faces is that the idea of narrowly tailoring a, um, a race-conscious program to meet a uh, compelling state interest, when you're narrowly tailoring something to achieve critical mass, critical mass is an unde- undefined and difficult to define term, and the university uh, resisted defining it during all arguments in 2012. So I think that's going to cause them some problems uh, this time around. But this is going to be, this is affirmative action, this is race, this is going to be a big battle, um, something uh, exciting happening at Supreme Court on this this issue. The second case that I would like to talk about coming down the pipeline is a little less high profile, but also very important and also has some very important implications for the law. This is a case called Luis versus United States. This case centers on the Sixth Amendment right to trial, also implicates the Fifth Amendment right to due process. Now, it is established in, in, in Supreme Court precedent that prosecutors may freeze the assets. Ilya referenced this in his opening statement. May freeze the assets, the tainted assets, of individuals who've been indicted for uh, certain criminal acts. And the Supreme Court says this doesn't violate the Sixth Amendment, even if these individuals would like to use their tainted funds to pay for a lawyer. The classic example is the bank robber. I rob a bank. I am arrested, I am indicted for for robbing a bank, I would like to use my ill-gotten gains to pay for the best criminal defense lawyer money can buy. I don't have a right to use other people's money to pay my lawyer. Fair enough. Well, what about um, non-tainted assets? What about legitimate assets, money that is not directly traceable back to the underlying crime that you've been charged with? Well, that is the question in this case. Uh, Ms. Louise um, who is the central figure here. She was indicted in 2012 in Florida op- for uh, being involved with operating this kind of co- complicated Medicare fraud scheme that is uh, she's alleged to have uh, defrauded Medicare of upwards of $40 million. Essentially, this was she, she's in the healthcare business, home healthcare business. Um, there's a this series of kickbacks to medical providers. There's falsified medical reports being sent to the government. Uh, overbilling, you know, the, these sorts of things. This sort of allegedly. allegedly, allegedly happening. She's been indicted. She says this is all pretrial. Uh, allegedly, thank you. Um, so the prosecutor in this case has moved successfully to freeze all of this woman's uh, assets. And under 18 U.S.C. Section 1345, which is a federal uh, forfeiture statute, uh, 
Such freezing of, of tainted assets may occur or uh, tainted assets or, quote, property of an equivalent value. So the government's argument here is that, uh, you know, there's probable cause that this woman did this. She's been indicted. There's probable cause that we're going to convict her. And we would very much like to put a hold on this money because we're going to she's on the hook for 40 million dollars if she's convicted. And this is forfeitable money. And we would like to make sure she doesn't dissipate all these funds by spending it on her lawyer or other things. And she has about $15 million of non-tainted assets. This is money that's come in through non-Medicare channels in her business. And she would like to use that money to pay for her lawyer. And she says she has a Sixth Amendment right to do so, as well as a Fifth Amendment right due process. So this case, obviously, is being watched very closely by the criminal defense bar. There are major implications for criminal, criminal law. There's property rights elements. So this is, a, this is an important and interesting case. Um, it may not get as, as many headlines as uh, Fisher, but it's also uh, definitely one to watch in the coming term. So those are two cases that are happening for sure. And now, uh, and also just in case, you know, Medicare fraud and affirmative action aren't exciting enough for you, we can talk about abortion which is another issue that may well end up before the court uh, this term. There are few petitions before the court right now. There's some cases in the pipeline. And it's, I think it's likely that an, a major abortion case will be before the Supreme Court sometime this year, maybe this term, maybe the next term. And so I thought I'd talk briefly about uh, two of the cases that seem that are before the court now in petitions for, uh, for cert. And you probably heard about these, and, and these, these could be the kind of cases that are taken. They're both, they, they share some interesting similarities. They're both out of the uh, Fifth Circuit. They're both dealing with state regulations on abortion, been passed in the last few years, regulations on physicians who perform abortions, and the clinics where the abortions occur. And these are ostensibly health and safety regulations. But there's a question of if that's their purpose, if that's their effect, um, or maybe they're an undue burden on abortion, to use the Supreme Court's language. One of, these, one of these cases is from Mississippi. It's called Courier versus Jackson's, Jackson Women's Health Organization. And it turns out the Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi is the one and only abortion uh, clinic in the entire state. And the Fifth Circuit has struck down the uh, abortion restrictions in this case, and the state has appealed, and that appeal is pending before the Supreme Court. And the second case, also from the Fifth Circuit, out of Texas, Whole Women's Health versus Cole. In this case, the the uh, Fifth Circuit has upheld the state regulations. And if these go into effect, they could close something like 75% of the clinics in the state. As I said, both these are pending at the Supreme Court. There are other abortion cases in the pipeline. Um, but so there's a potential of a term where we have things like affirmative action, abortion, you know, you know really boring issues that you know, don't interest anybody. Uh, and reporters have no interest in either. And uh, just to conclude. I wanted to say a few words about Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, just get kind of a, maybe a big picture kind of talk about the chief. Uh, I don't know how many of you uh, endured last night's three-hour-plus uh, Republican presidential debate. Hands up. Don't, don't brag about it. Many, <laughs> I, I'm paid to watch that. Um, well, you probably noticed a segment where Chief Justice Roberts was uh, criticized quite severely by uh, Senator Cruz and others. And this has been a, sort of a common theme on the right in the last few years. I've seen the Chief Justice referred to as a traitor to legal conservatism. He's betrayed legal conservatism. He's even been compared to uh, Justice David Souter, which, frankly, that's a kind of a low blow, even for the chief. Um, 
Now, this, these attacks are all, of course, about Obamacare, about the 2012 decision by the Chief Justice where he uh, saves Obamacare from a constitutional challenge, and then they're also about the case we heard about today, more recent, a statutory challenge to Obamacare, which the Chief also saved the law from destruction. So I just wanted to end by challenging the idea that Roberts has betrayed legal conservatism. I think if you look at legal conservatism, the conservative legal movement over the last, let's say, 40 years, you see that legal conservatives have repeatedly championed and embraced the idea of judicial restraint or judicial deference, that the, uh, the courts are the least democratic branch of government, therefore they owe extra respect, more deference to the elected branches of government, to the president elected, Congress elected, state legislatures elected. And John Roberts in his Obamacare decisions, especially 2012, but also I would argue this more recent term, has really embraced the concept of judicial deference. I think that he stands for conservative judicial restraint in many respects. In 2012, in the Obamacare case, he wrote, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. I think that's a that's sort of the classic argument for judicial restraint, for conservative judicial restraint, which is an argument conservatives have been making, as I said, for the last 40 years from Robert Bork on down. And so I think that the, the current conservative uh, you know, disenchantment, disgruntlement attacks on Roberts tell us something very interesting about where the conservative legal movement is right now, where legal conservatives are, which is that these, these arguments for judicial restraint and for uh, deferring to the will of the majority, deferring to the representatives of the people, they don't quite carry the same weight that they once did. And there, there are a lot of factors, I think, that have, that have changed that are changing this, this attitude on the right. One, I think, is the, uh, the, what, what I call the, the libertarian legal movement, libertarian lawyers, legal scholars, activists, people here at the Cato Institute are, are centrally involved in that, um, as well as the rise of originalism, constitutional originalism, which, if you think about it, the idea that the court should defer to the elected branches of government and the idea that the court should be upholding the text of the Constitution, even when 51% of the people don't like it, these two concepts are, they're sort of at war with each other. They, they certainly don't ex coexist easily. And so we're seeing the, I think, conservative, legal conservatives grappling with these two ideas. And I think that that's something that is, is well worth watching and is going to continue to be something that uh, will be happening on the Supreme Court in the years to come. So with that, thank you all very much. I look forward to taking questions in a few minutes. Uh, on Fisher, I, uh, I hope, Damon, that it's not a punt, that they uh, go for a keenly prepared passing play that goes over the illusory holistic review defense and scores a big touchdown. All right. Um, last, but decidedly, decidedly not least, John Elwood is an appellate partner in the Washington office of Vincent Elkins and advisor to the University of Virginia's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. He has argued nine cases in the Supreme Court, so is quite jealous of Lisa. Uh, John is a regular contributor to SCOTUS blog, as well as the author of the Green Bag's much-anticipated What Were They Thinking feature, aka Supreme Court in Review, that's R-E-V-U-E, -E, uh, which hasn't run in a few years, but you get a flavor uh, from his piece in Cato's Review that you have. He spent time in some very prestigious jobs at the Justice Department, and in that time received DOJ's top uh, two awards, 
Unlike some of us, however, John has never had a brief selected for the Green Bags Exemplary Legal Writing Annual Collection. Uh, maybe that's why he hasn't written for them in a while. I, I don't know. Uh, John clerked for Justice Kennedy, so perhaps he should write a what was he thinking piece. And most importantly, he graduated from Princeton. Go Tigers. So even though uh, this you know, term doesn't have quite the luster of past terms, uh, the way that I've uh, characterized it in the article, which I'm sure all of you will read every word of, is that it's kind of a term of sequels. And there are many uh, cases or questions presented from past terms of the century that are, you know, weren't decided the first time. And they're back now to be answered, hopefully, uh, this upcoming term. And so I think that, you know, considering how few cases uh, there are granted for next term, it's really, there are some real keepers there. Uh, I'm going to be focusing principally on the election law cases. It's a big term for election law. First up is Evenwell versus Abbott. Uh, in 1964, is Reynolds versus Sims, the Supreme Court held that states must make election districts, quote, as nearly of equal population as is practicable, unquote, to ensure equal voting rights. This is the one person, one vote, although, of course, they didn't put in those politically correct terms back then. Um, and that's, what, that's the reason why we can't essentially have uh, geographic lines uh, be constitute voting districts, you know, like people elected at a county basis or things along those lines. Next terms, even well, uh, will resolve the question that is long overdue uh, 51 years after Reynolds versus Sims, which is, what is a person? And uh, there's the question of whether it's you base top population for district on total population, uh, which is so-called representational equality. That is, you know, everybody in the district is entitled to a same percentage of the uh, legislative uh, person's uh, attention. Or uh, electoral equality, where you uh, have it so that the districts are of uh, equal or close to equal uh, numbers of uh, registered voters. Sims didn't specify. Two years later, uh, the court wrote in Burns versus Richardson, uh, it upheld Hawaii's decision to use uh, voters um, because at the time they didn't want to have, they didn't uh, count uh, all of the military people who were stationed in Hawaii who weren't entitled to vote in that state. And the Supreme Court said, okay, but along the lines it said something which I guess is technically dicta, uh, but uh, the courts below have largely treated it as though it is a holding. And they said, quote, we are not to be understood. Oh, that's not the, qu the quote. Um, Elwood is the greatest guy ever. That's not the quote I wanted to use. Uh, quote, the decision to include or exclude any such group involves choices about the nature of representation with which we have been shown no constitutionally founded reason to interfere, unquote. And so based on that, I think uh, it was largely assumed, at least by the professoriate, that it was a decision that was pretty much left up to the states. And uh, uh, this, was the this was the view held in certain sectors of government, as I'll discuss later. Um, uh, and certainly, uh, every federal court of appeals uh, upheld the use of total population. So it was pretty clear that the state, or that the courts of appeals said that that was just dandy. In 1990, uh, Judge Kaczynski uh, said that it was a, a question that needed more attention. And in 2001, Justice Thomas dissented from the court's denial of cert to review the redistricting plan in Texas in Chen versus Houston, um, writing that the court, quote, had an obligation to explain to states and localities what population actually means. Uh, and he noted there that, you know, depending on how you did it, you could have variances in numbers of voters on the order of 20 to 30 percent. 
the petitioners in Evenwell say that the variance at issue there is more on the order as it begins at 30% and goes as high as 55%. Uh, there uh, in Texas, the legislative districts were drawn according to total population. Um, and the challengers, who are uh, a couple of uh, Republicans who live in rural Texas, say that uh, they've essentially packed in, you know, uh, Republicans and registered voters in certain districts, and that the uh, that there are other districts. Uh, be- we just lost another light. Well, that good. Wasn't even that controversial. It allows me to see the audience, though, which is a bonus for me, or maybe not. Um, uh, but in any event, uh, the, the idea is that it favors Democrats uh, because uh, uh, the, it, it tends to dilute the it t- tends to dilute uh, registered voters who you know uh, districts which are uh, more likely to be uh, leaning Republican, and it tends to favor districts according to uh, voting rights experts. Tends to favor districts that are more heavily uh, minority. Um, uh, it's noteworthy that the court took this case, even though the issue is splitless. Um, but I think that it is a case that has struck people as interesting, and you really can't beat the statistics uh, for um, you know getting the case on what Lisa has called in previous Supreme Court previews the outrage docket. Uh, that when the justices see that kind of variance, that it's more likely to get their attention. Um, I'll be very interested to see what exactly happens here. Uh, we only have briefings so far from the appellant side, the challengers side. We haven't seen the briefs on the other side yet. Um, but it will be interesting to see what sort of arguments they come up with. Some of the professoriate Rick Pildes has said, you know, total population was what was used at the time of the founding. Total population was used at the time uh, the 14th Amendment was ratified, so that should be just fine. Uh, but there is, uh, the way that the challengers have framed it is uh, essentially whether the choice of total versus voting population is unreviewable no matter how much vote dilution it causes. And I think that that's a way that is calculated to agree to uh, my former employer, Justice Kennedy, uh, because uh, he is somebody who is not fond of saying, you know, never say never. And I think that uh, he may think that this is finally something that goes too far, but, you know, it remains to be seen. Um, One thing that will be interesting uh, to see is in the past, uh, the SG's office has filed a brief that said that this is really an issue for the states. Um, And even though, you know, one... Uh, Solicitor General doesn't have to bind all of history. It'll be very interesting to see what comes of that and whether the uh, the Solicitor General's office under the, the uh, Obama administration says the same thing because I think their first favorite answer because it favors Democrats is going to be total population. Um, and even leaving it up to the states, although it you know may be better than uh, making it registered voters, uh, would still leave it up to states, and states like Texas, heavily Republican states, may decide that they want to help out Republicans. So we will see. And uh, we think that at least some of the members of the court will know that because John Roberts was the deputy SG who filed that brief. Um, and if you hypnotized Lisa and I, we still wouldn't know what the name of the case is. It's something that we're trying to figure out what it is. So if you know, uh, email me so I can look more, more intelligent during the next uh, Supreme Court preview. Uh, the second voting rights case is Harris versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. Um, the AIRC, uh, just a day after being uh, upheld as constitutional, because that was a case that was on for last term, was whether or not uh, you can, even though it says the legislatures take care of redistricting, whether you can, uh, the, uh, by referendum, a state can say, let's have an independent redistricting commission do it. Um, uh, a day afterwards, the court decided to review this case. It's a, I think it's a mandatory jurisdiction case, so it's 
uh, a mandatory appeal. But the questions are essentially, uh, well, well, this. The challengers pointed out that, quote, of 30 legislative districts, the 18 with population deviation greater than 2% from ideal population, so that is the ones that are that deviate from the ideal population district, 18 of the 30 correlate perfectly with Democratic Party advantage, uh, which is an awfully incriminating fact. And the true questions presented are whether the desire to gain partisan advantage for one political party justifies intentionally deviating from one person from one vote. Um, and then secondly, because, uh, you know, as it happens here, the evidence was, there was not that much evidence uh, that they did it for purposes of uh, favoring the Democratic Party. But there was a lot of evidence that they wanted to favor Hispanic voters, and they obviously correlate pretty well. And the second question presented is whether the desire to obtain favorable preclearance review from the Justice Department, because at the time they redistricted in 2010, they were still under preclearance, uh, pre permits the creation of legislative districts that deviate from one person, one vote principle. Um, so a three-judge district court uh, upheld it by a two-to-one vote. Uh, a George W. Bush appointee wrote the majority opinion joined by a Clinton appointee. A, uh, a George W. Bush appointed district judge dissented. And the two-judge district court said that the redistricting was constitutional, concluding that the population deviations were primarily the result of good faith efforts to uh, get preclearance because they wanted to get the preclearance done so they could hold their elections in 2012. And they said that was okay. And even though Section 5, uh, the that is the... Um, Thanks. So, uh, even though uh, in Shelby County, the, later, the Supreme Court later invalidated the formula for deciding which jurisdictions were subject to preclearance, and thus they were out from under preclearance, it was kosher that you know to go along with it because at the time they redistricted, uh, they were still subject to preclearance, and so that was a valid consideration for them to follow. Um, the uh, and it's worthwhile at this point to note that the commission was under the impression that. Uh, the Justice Department, so this is a, you know, he thought that she thought, et cetera. The commission thought that the Justice Department thought that uh, there were 10 districts uh, out of 30 where uh, minorities would be able to elect their candidate of choice. And so to avoid looking like they were backsliding because you have the anti-retrogression principle, um, they had to come up with 10 districts again. And indeed, they did it one better by coming up with 10 and a half, essentially. They, they tried to uh, get an 11th district. But in order to do that, they had to underpopulate uh, certain districts, which were tended to be Democratic and Hispanic or minority, and overpopulate others, which were, you know, with rare exception, uh, essentially Republican districts. And um, there was a very good dissent by Judge Wake, which I think is going to resonate. And in fact, I think that the dissent from Judge Wake uh, is the main reason why it's here, because it said some stuff that I think is really going to resonate with uh, some members of the majority. Um, and it argued that uh, wanting to get preclearance was essentially invalid or insufficient as a matter of law as a basis for trying to get, um, for, as a basis for violating one person, one vote. And I, if you'll remember uh, Justice, or Chief Justice Roberts saying the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, I think that what Judge Wake will, said will, will resonate. He's, he wrote, there is no basis in statutory text, administrative interpretation, or precedent to systematically dilute people's voting rights for any reason, least of all as a protection of equal voting rights. And I think that that is really going to resonate with uh, the conservatives on the court that you can't unequally count people, essentially, in order to protect equal voting rights. So we will see what exactly comes out of this. 
Um, I, I think that it's more likely that they'll resolve this on the preclearance ground uh, than on the uh, ger partisan gerrymandering ground. If you remember uh, Viath versus Jubilee, I don't know how to pronounce either name. Um, but if you remember that, you know, the court all but said that uh, partisan gerrymandering is basically not justiciable. You just, there's not a standard. You can't figure it out. And Justice Kennedy wouldn't join uh, Justice Scalia's opinion for four justices saying, you know, I haven't seen it yet, but maybe um, we'll see it still. Um, and, I, you know, given uh, that I think you could, it's easier to get to the preclearance result than it is to the, the race one. So uh, from there, I'm going to head on to uh, sort of a lightning round of cases coming down the pike still. Um, one case I want to talk about is, is Kent. the pike or the pipe? I hear it both ways. I'm never certain. I think it's coming down the pike. That sounds even more archaic. Although, um, as a representer of oil and gas interests, maybe you can say it's coming down the pipe. Um, but the first is Kent Recycling versus Corps of Engineers and Corps of Engineers versus Hawks. Uh, if you remember Sackett versus EPA, uh, holding 9-0 that an EPA remediation order under the Clean Water Act was final agency action for purposes of the Administrative Procedure Act. Sounds dull, but very important. It means whether or not you can go into court and challenge what EPA is telling you to do. Uh, Justice Alito had a separate concurrence saying that essentially a jurisdictional determination, the, jur the determination by you know, the, the government that, that you have waters of the United States on your land that subjects you to the Clean Water Act that determination is enough to go into court. And uh, you know, as it happens, I filed, I thought, a very good amicus brief uh, in that case, which, which talked about exactly what a burden it is the minute they say that. And I mean, literally, your property values go down. Um, and uh, so uh, Pacific Legal Foundation filed a petition in Kent Recycling. It was denied, probably because it was splitless in, I think, March. Uh, fairly soon thereafter, though, lo and behold, the Eighth Circuit, uh, where they also represent the, par uh, the party, um, sided with them. And so now there was a split. They filed a rehearing petition. Um, the government uh, was forced to file a response, when it just, which itself is unusual to have to file a response to a rehearing petition because the court rarely grants them. Um, and, uh, they, and the government said, don't worry, we got a rehearing petition uh, going in the Eighth Circuit. We'll take care of this. Of course, the Eighth Circuit turned it down and it still sat there on the docket. So a month early, the government filed a cert petition from the Eighth Circuit case, clearly wanted to present the court with an alternative vehicle uh, showing that they are at least worried about this. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, although, just as a lover of weirdness at the Supreme Court, I'll be disappointed if they don't grant Kent recycling because you know, it's nice to be able to pull for those rehearing petitions every few years. Um, uh, cell site location information, there's a split about whether or not uh, you, the government needs to get a warrant for your cell site location information. There's one case in front of the court now, there's a split. That, that case is from the Fifth Circuit. Fifth and Eleventh say don't need a warrant. Fourth Circuit just said you do need a warrant. Uh, but I'm wasting your time because I think there are vehicle problems with both of the cases that are likely to be before the court uh, in that there was a good faith basis for going after them at the time. So I don't think the court will grant those, but it will be granting them soon. And I do think the court is poised to reconsider a lot of ordinary Fourth Amendment law when it comes to uh, high tech. Um, I will talk just briefly about Little Sisters of the Poor because I have news for some of you at least which is the, court, the case talking about the Affordable Care Act and the obligation there uh, through both the statute and the regulation to provide contraceptives free of charge to employees through your program. Um, there, you know, Little Sisters of the Poor, there's an exemption regula by regulation for um, essentially churches and their, their closely close auxiliaries. 
Um, but there isn't for nonprofits that are religious. And Little Sisters of the Poor uh, wanted an exemption, and the regulatory exemption they got still required them to take affirmative action that they uh, sincerely believe uh, essentially makes them complicit in forms of contraception that are tantamount to abortion. Simplification, but I'm under the gun here for time. Anyway, the case was already, I think, a pretty good uh, odds of assert. They got a stay from the Supreme Court, uh, which is, you know, not nothing. Uh, the fifth, or rather, the tenth circuit, five justices, include five judges, rather, including Gorsuch and Timkovich, you know, brilliant, influential guys, descended from denial of rehearing on bank. They tried to get rehearing and bank themselves, um, and I think all of that. Uh, you know, that and as uh, uh, Paul Clement said in the cert petition, this is extraordinarily wrong. I think the decision below is extraordinarily wrong. Um, I made it a pretty good candidate for cert, but today, a reason to watch Twitter, uh, the Eighth Circuit uh, uh, upheld the grant of a preliminary injunction to the other side using reasoning that is, you know, diametrically opposed to the Tenth Circuit and all the other cases that are, you know, aligned with the administration's proposal here. So I think that is probably a pretty good uh, uh, candidate for cert. And I will leave you with that, even though I could just keep going all day. But as a humanitarian gesture, I won't. All right. Um, before we open it up for questions, I want to see if uh, any of the panelists want to comment on each other's cases or bring up uh, something new. Apparently not. We have perfect agreement or boredom or, or something. Uh, well, oh, we got one of the lights. No, no, wait. No, they're both two out. I thought that. Anyway, we have enough wattage here on stage to take care of all of your lighting needs here. All right. Um, how we do this is wait for the microphone, actually ask a question, and please identify yourself in any affiliation. Let's go up there. And the second one will be here. I'm Art Spitzer from the ACLU. I have a question about Fisher. Um, my understanding, just from newspapers and such, is that um, Abigail Fisher graduated from another college some years ago and still has standing because she's seeking money. She's seeking, I think, a refund of her application fee and nominal damages. If I'm wrong about that, please correct me. But it makes me wonder, why doesn't the University of Texas just send her a check for $1,000 and moot the case, or is there some reason why it wouldn't moot the case? Yeah, I, um, this is a disclosure, I, mean, I filed a brief um, last time in favor of the University of Texas, and having been a University of Texas grad twice, uh, filed a brief in support of them again. They're arguing that out the wazoo. It's just that they didn't, they haven't, as far as I can tell, they haven't tendered the $100 check, but their whole argument is that she would not have made the cut even if they hadn't had the race conscious admission. So they've been devoting pages and pages of standing arguments uh, the last time. They also did it in opposition to cert this time. It's just not th thus far gotten any traction, but I'm sure they'll argue it again. It's just the court hasn't shown any interest in that. But she has arguments that even if she got the $100, she's damaged. Hello. <laughs> yeah, my name is Todd Kiefer. I uh, am an infrequent blogger at freemarketmonkey.com. Um, I'm just wondering if, um, if you have any opinion on if... Um, 
Justice Roberts is going to get another chance at Obamacare with CISL on origination and how he might um, see that different than the first two cases. Anyone want to comment on that? I can take it. I, I, I suspect that they will uh, do whatever they can to try to avoid that if they can. And uh, the fact that- To clarify, the issue here is that since not just the individual mandate, but there are lots of different taxes uh, in the Affordable Care Act, and uh, if that's the case, then that has to originate uh, in the House under the Constitution. What happened with the Affordable Care Act was they took a completely unrelated uh, uh, bill uh, that passed the House and, uh, or was introduced in the House, and uh, uh, amended it by replacing everything except the bill number. Uh, and that became the Affordable Care Act. And so uh, is the, that would seem to present an origination clause problem. We have the lead counsel on that case, Cecil, uh, Tim Sandifer here in the audience. Uh, but anyway, John, go ahead. But uh, I think, you know, the D.C. Circuit, the way they resolved that was that uh, they all seemed to agree that there wasn't a, an origination clause violation, but it was for two different reasons. The um, majority, which tend to be more uh, liberal-leaning, on the D.C. Circuit said there wasn't an origination cause problem because it wasn't really for the purpose of raising revenue. Uh, it was the purpose for the purpose of enslaving us. Oh, I'm sorry, that's editorialization. <laughs> now, um, I'm actually channeling somebody else there at just the effect of being in this building. But uh, the uh, and the second rationale, though, to show what law nerds these guys are, uh, just uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, said, uh, and he thought enough of this to dissent from denial of rehearing on bank that. Uh, that it didn't offend the origination clause, but only because uh, it's enough that essentially the number uh, originated in the House, you know, that that part of the bill, and if, even if you paper over all the rest of it, um, at least that is what I was able to absorb through my rather slapdash perusal of it. But I think that after the trauma of the last couple of cases, I don't think anybody's going to be in a huge rush uh, to take this case, but that's my own half-witted thought. Look, if a mandate can be a tax and a state exchange can be a non-state exchange, then certainly this uh, presents even less of a problem to swat away. So. Uh, yeah, we had one over there, and then the next one will be over here. Uh, Kyle Singal, recent GW Law grad. A uh, question about Fisher. Is there any set of circumstances under which the court would reevaluate the compelling interest prong uh, and reevaluate whether diversity in higher education is a compelling interest? And if so, how do you think they would go? So that, that, that's in uh, Baki, one of the central um, precedents in this area. Uh, it's not an issue in this case. The over, neither overturning Baki nor overturning um, Gruder, the uh, Michigan Law School uh, case, is, is at issue. So that's not, that's not coming this time around. I think there are several votes on the court to do that. Um, Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is fairly hostile to uh, uh, the use of race, use of race by the government as he sees it, um, but I don't, I don't think that that's in the in the cards anytime soon. Yeah, I do read the uh, petitioner Fisher's brief is taking it on, um, although they haven't asked for Grutter or Baki to be overruled. But I do think, and I think you'll probably see UT cast the brief in that light too. I do think they take it on. Kennedy, remember, has never voted for a racial preferences program, but has never slammed the door on it. So you could see kind of a, a ruling whereby UTs and therefore most, if not all, 
so-called holistic review programs, which are basically shams to allow racial preferences. That was the irony of the Grutter-Grotz combination. If you, do, if you transparently use racial preferences, that's not okay. If you obfuscate, then that's okay. Um, so he could throw out that sort of thing while leaving the diversity as a compelling interest, in effect, uh, ha leaving that as a compelling interest that can never be uh, advanced in any constitutional way, perhaps. I mean, the only thing I would add about Fisher that makes it interesting or not interesting is that the University of Texas plan is unique. There is no one else that does this top 10 plan, and the University of Texas plan at issue, I think, stopped back in whatever it was, 2008. So it's not even a current plan. The more interesting question, and it's the um, uh, same petitioner, same lawyers in the one person, one vote, and also they're on the brief in Fisher, is the, is the case that's filed against Harvard that does sort of take on the whole issue of um, race-conscious admission, qua-race-conscious admission with no top ten plan, but just can you do it? So that's where the action is. Having said that, the court still took the Fisher case, even though it's, it could be a very limited decision no matter what they do. Nasa Rich, no affiliation. I don't agree with Mr. Root's uh, picture of John Roberts, and I'm wondering, is there some way we can get rid of him before this uh, term comes on? No. Uh, I, I, he's probably not going anywhere anytime soon as Chief Justice. Um, let, let me just say that I, I'm not necessarily an admirer of his handiwork in those cases or others. I'm, but I'm interested in his legal philosophy, and I'm interested in the extent to which um, this is a moment, I think, maybe for self-reflection for legal conservatives who really have been making very strong, very sort of majoritarian, pro-democracy kind of legal arguments in favor of judicial restraint and deference for quite some time. And if you read Robert Bork, you get a a heavy dose of this. And I think Roberts comes right out of that school. And so to have so many conservatives now, especially like somebody like Ted Cruz, who was one of his big backers, now say, oh, well, you know, Roberts is this judicial activist. Well, he's, Roberts really is practicing what he preaches in terms of judicial restraint the way he understands it. Um, and so I, to me, what's interesting is, is that this is forcing, I think, many conservatives to rethink a longstanding commitment to judicial restraint over other concerns, since that's why I brought up originalism also, because I see those as, as, in, as in conflict. So this doesn't mean that, you know, Roberts is, um, conservatives should like him, but I think it, it's, it's an opportunity for legal conservatives to, to think about what their, what their legal philosophy is, what they want it to be, what some of the implications are when it cuts against uh, maybe their policy preferences. In, in other words, conservatives are torn between interpretive theories, originalism, textualism, that they uh, at least pay lip service to, and, judicial, and the judicial mode, that is restraint or minimalism, which they also uh, like. Um, you know, my position, libertarian's position, is clear. We like the, the actual theory and let the political cards fall where they may. But that's, uh, that's what you get with, uh, with John Roberts. You can call him a judicial pacifist or um, practitioner of judicial abdication in, in certain contexts. I'm wondering if the panel would uh, offer an opinion on the subject of the affordability of justice currently in this country, knowing that in order to get to the Supreme Court, you will have gone through a superior court, an appellate court, perhaps a Supreme Court of the state, 
before you get to the Supreme Court, potentially, if your petition for cert is not granted in your own state. And how you feel about that as um, people who studied law, uh, and do you think that justice is affordable in this country? Really meaty issue. Anyone want to take a swing at that? I mean, when the Supreme Court, I mean, John and I, I think half of our cases are probably, I don't know about you, John, but do pro bono cases all the time. I think the issue is That's just... That's because the other half, what's your hourly rate? A thousand bucks? I mean, I think it was Joan, uh, Joan B. Skupik wrote an article about how, you know, justice is just for the rich because of the Supreme Court bar, uh, most of which is male, all works for, you know, corporations and stuff like that. And there's like, there's so many... Uh, people that will do this work for free in the Supreme Court. The, the, the thing is just getting your, your case. In, in the Supreme Court, it's easy. It's, the, it's getting it to, to, begin, to begin with. Um, so I, it's just a question of getting somebody interested in your case. But right. so I, I don't think the – for political ones, it's not hard. It's just the, it's the medical malpractice and the landlord-tenant stuff and divorce and all that stuff that – or fighting with your insurance company that's not affordable. Supreme Court's easy. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I mean, I couldn't afford me. Um, but uh, for people who have claims that are, you know, like the Sacketts, for example, the people who you can interest uh, the various legal foundations in your claim uh, because your case raises larger issues, I think that you have a much better, uh, you know, shot than people who, you know, were raising the same claims, you know, 40 years ago where there weren't nearly as many nonprofits that were set up to take such claims. Uh, and that is the 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 bigger problem is people who have just run of the mill claims who uh, don't have the resources to uh, uh, you know bring their cases and or keep us keep asserting their claims as long as they would like to. I was curious how you. Uh, my name is Joel Mandelman. I filed an amicus brief in the last Fisher case, but not in this one. How can you classify? John Roberts as a minimalist or as a respecter of legislative uh, priorities when he takes a statute like the Affordable Care Act, twists it inside out, almost bends himself into a pretzel in order to save a statute that is clearly unconstitutional. A tax is not a tax, except when it is a tax, except when it's not a tax, all in the same case, and then does the same thing in King versus Burwell, and goes out of his way to rewrite the statute to say things it clearly does not say. And he says, well, but that's really what I think they meant. How can you call that minimalism? It's the worst kind of activism. Well, there's multiple things. I mean, it's all speculation. Who knows what's actually going on uh, in his head, but... Um uh, so the, the minimalism, pacifism is part of it. Part of it is uh, his thinking about his role as the chief justice and the keeper of the court's integrity and kind of small p political trying to extract the court from the political discourse. As I mentioned in the first panel this morning, I don't think he's been very successful in that. Um, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of complicated things going on there. Um, uh, and I should say, by the way, we, we critique, me, me especially, uh, both Robert and Kennedy for that matter, but they are the two that most agreed with Cato this term and most terms, uh, in fact. So there are cases and there are cases, and I think Scalia's right uh, in large part uh, in saying, uh, in, in the part of his dissent in, in King, 
um, that uh, all kind of standard uh, 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 canons of statutory and constitutional interpretation go out the window when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. And part of that might be just a bias towards a status quo in term when there's major pieces of legislation. And Roger is chomping at the bit to add to that. Uh, Roger Pilan Cato, uh, to pick up on Joel Mandelbaum's uh, question, um, he's Joel is absolutely right that he's an activist insofar as he is not a, a, reading the law correctly and then applying it correctly. But I think the key to it is that he is infused with deference to the political branches because he is essentially a post-New Deal constitutional revolution uh, advocate. That is to say, he sees the Constitution as essentially a small-D democratic document consistent with the Borkian view that uh, Damon has written so much about, whereby the Constitution, as Bork put it, um, explaining it with reference to what he called the Madisonian um, dilemma, is a document that provides for wide areas in which majorities may rule. Nevertheless, there are some things that majorities cannot do to minorities. That is a pure post-New Deal vision of the Constitution. It's not Madison's vision of the Constitution. And so as Roberts is in that vein, then he will find any way to defer to the political branches which dominate, in his mind, the constitutional domain and that means, if necessary, as in the uh, King decision, to twist the law so that what Congress meant, even though it's not what they wrote, will prevail. And it's that sense in which he is essentially abdicating his responsibility to see to it that, as Madison said, the court stands as a bulwark of our liberties. And you can read a longer version, expanded version of that analysis in the forward uh, in your volume of the review. Will any of the other panelists want to comment on that issue? Yeah, I just can't wait till he rules on abortion and gun control and women's rights and all kinds of and affirmative action. And uh, is this the Affordable Care Act is the only case the court has ever acted on? I mean, there's lots of cases, and I guess. I think of the court, and I've said this over and over, they're like an old married couple. They, they move on, and the conservatives are going to need him in the next case. So why would you attack this guy? He's your friend. Well, as far as Cato's concerned, he was wrong on both King and Obergefell. That's two so. cases out of, like, 700. I mean, and there's going to be 700 more. But I just, I understand they're big cases, but for some people, abortion and race and uh, the, white, the right or non-right to hold a weapon is a big case. And I don't know where he's going to come out on those. Um, but the other thing to think about is, you know, how this might affect him. I mean, presumably it doesn't, but I can't imagine this helps the cause that conservatives are saying you're not one of us. That would just piss me off if I heard that for him. So I just don't think you're helping yourself by criticizing him. It's not, he can't go back and change the vote. You're done. That's over. That case is over. You should work on the next case because you're, you're going to need him. And it's just weird to have a guy who everybody hates. He's too conservative for the for the left and too 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 left for the right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's what did it for libertarians. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I uh, Walter Clapp, a three L from Georgetown, and hopeful amender to the Constitution. Um, since you have the lights going off uh, on you, I was 
wondering if you could shed some light on uh, potential federal um, interaction with the electric Better grid. Better when you don't use the same word twice. You gotta use the. You know. oh. 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 Sorry. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission versus uh, Energy, energy uh, Power Electric Power Supply Association. Any FERC scholars here? I'm FERC friendly, but I have to say I don't even remember what the case is about. Apparently, it's dense. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. It's a, uh, you, you know you can drop an email to the, uh, the the council in the case. I'm sure you know. They, I'm sure they're more than happy to, to have someone take an interest in, in the case. Anyone else have any questions about the coming term or longer uh, trends or themes about the Supreme Court? I guess not. We can end a few minutes early. That's fine. Let's uh, thank our panel. Okay. Okay.